This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. So the more that time passes, the more that I become convinced that none of this is real. It's either a giant simulation that we're all part of, or this is nothing more than a fever dream. So let me try to explain the situation that unfolded over the weekend surrounding multiple presidential candidates. So rapper and 2024 presidential candidate Kanye West met with former president and current 2024 presidential candidate Donald Trump, who also happens to be a reality television show star, and he brought with him to said meeting a Nazi. So now there's a spat between these two individuals. And on top of that, Kanye West is calling out Ben Shapiro for being biased against Kanye West by taking money from Ron DeSantis and then giving preferable coverage to Ron DeSantis, an opponent to Kanye West, hence the uh, biased coverage. And on top of that, Ye is also attacking elon musk now owner of twitter also the richest man on the planet for not unbanning alex jones who defamed the families of victims of the sandy hook massacre all of this unfolded in the course of one weekend and it just feels like we're watching the movie idiocracy but a real life version of it like we're seeing a play of idiocracy unfold so let's get to the specifics here kanye west brought a nazi to meet with donald trump and this is how he said the meeting went. I think the thing that Trump was most perturbed about, me asking him to be my vice president, I think that was like lower on the list of things that caught him off guard. It was the fact that I walked in with intelligence. So Trump is really impressed with Nick Fuentes. And Nick Fuentes, unlike so many of the lawyers and so many people that he was left with on his 2020 campaign, he's actually a loyalist. When he didn't know what the lawyers is, you'll still have your lawyer list. And when all the lawyers said, forget it, Trump's done, there are loyalists running up yep. in the White House, right? And my question would be, why, when you had the chance, did you not free the January Sixers? And I came to him as someone who loves Trump, and I said, go and get Corey back. Go and get these people that the media tried to cancel and told you to step away from. He basically gives me this would-be mob-esque kind of story talking to some kid from the south side of Chicago trying to sound mobby or whatever. He goes into the story about all that he went through to get Alice Johnson out of jail and how he didn't do it for Kim, but he did it for me. But then he goes on to say that Kim is a and you could tell her I said that. And I was thinking like, that's the mother of my children. Since we know, and all the Christians in America that love Trump know that Trump is a conservative, we're going to demand that you hold all policies directly to the Bible. When Trump started 
basically screaming at me at the table telling me I was going to lose. I mean, has that ever worked for anyone in history? Telling me <laughs> you're going to lose. Tell him he's going to lose. Tell I'm like, well, well, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, Trump. You're talking to Ye. Just FYI, that video has since been deleted. But Kanye West said multiple things there that made me scratch my head. He referred to Nick Fuentes as intelligence, saying, I walked in with intelligence. He claimed that Trump was really impressed with Nick Fuentes, a Holocaust-denying Nazi. And on top of that, he made a little bit of a demand to Donald Trump, saying that we're going to demand that you hold all policies directly to the Bible. That's going to come into the equation later because that is something that uh, Kanye West, along with his Nazi friends, are trying to encourage. Now, if you're curious about what took place during the meeting, well, it seems like Kanye West's retelling of the event wasn't that far off. As Axios explains, behind the scenes, a source familiar with the dinner conversation told Axios that Trump seemed very taken with Fuentes, impressed that the 24-year-old was able to rattle off statistics and recall speeches dating back to his 2016 campaign. Paraphrasing the conversation, the source said Fuentes told told the president he preferred him to be authentic and that Trump seemed scripted and unlike himself during his recent 2024 campaign announcement speech. Trump responded, you like it better when I just speak off the cuff, the source said. Fuentes replied that he did, calling Trump an amazing president when he was unrestrained. There was a lot of fawning back and forth, the source added. Fuentes told Trump that he represented a side of Trump's base that was disappointed with his newly cautious approach, especially with what some far-right activists view as a lack of support for those charged in the January 6th Capitol attack. Trump at one point turned to Ye and said, I really like this guy. He gets me, according to the source, of course, referring to Nick Fuentes, the Nazi. Now, as NBC News reports, fucking nightmare. Trump team does damage control after he dines with Ye and white supremacist Nick Fuentes. The former president's campaign claims he didn't know anything about Fuentes, who joined the rapper under fire for his anti-Semitic remarks. No, it does seem that sources close to Trump are corroborating this claim that Trump didn't know who Nick Fuentes was. The problem is that you certainly knew who Kanye West was. And I know that as terminally online Donald Trump is, he maybe heard something about the anti-Semitic tirade that Kanye West recently went on. So I maybe can understand, OK, you didn't know that Kanye West would bring a Nazi, but you knew that Kanye West was saying very disturbing anti-Semitic things, but yet you still agreed to a meeting. So, I mean, still kind of uh, bad on your part, but he tried to downplay this on Truth Social, going into full damage control mode, saying, so I help a seriously troubled man who just happens to be black. Yay, Kanye West, who has been decimated in his business and virtually everything else, and who has always been good to me by allowing his request for a meeting at Mar-a-Lago alone so that I can give him very much needed advice. He shows up with three people, two of which I didn't know, the other a political person who I haven't seen in years. I told him don't run for office, a total waste of time, can't win, fake news went crazy. So, Trump, the reason why fake news went crazy is because you literally had dinner with a Nazi, an actual Nazi who called for a dictatorship, who's a Holocaust denier. So that's no small thing, considering you are currently the front runner to be the Republican Party's nomination for the president of the United States in 2024. So, yeah, this is why they're going crazy. But as you can hear from the tone of that tweet or see from the tone of his tweet rather he's going into damage control mode and i think that this is hilarious because i think that donald trump was expecting kanye west to pay fealty to him but instead kanye west came with a different agenda to try to influence trump 
presumably to be more evangelical in his political orientation. And on top of that, he asked Trump if he would be his running mate. So Kanye West did not kiss Trump's ring. Contrarily, he was there to challenge Donald Trump, presumably. But still, it's a bad look that you had dinner with a Nazi. That stink will never leave you. And Ben Shapiro took to Twitter to condemn Donald Trump, saying a good way not to accidentally dine with a vile racist and anti-Semite you don't know is not to dine with a vile racist and anti-Semite you do know. Now, to that point, I agree with Ben Shapiro. The problem is that this is the pot calling the kettle black. Because look at the company that Ben Shapiro himself keeps. He has platformed Matt Walsh, a self-described theocratic fascist. So perhaps you should also look at the company that you keep, Ben Shapiro. But Kanye West saw that and he decided to respond to Ben Shapiro, which is where the shit show really begins. Ye shared this Media Matters article, which reads, Ron DeSantis paid over $100,000 to Ben Shapiro's Daily Wire. And he responded by saying, Shapiro starvingly accepts $100,000 from one of my opponents, then tries to trash me. He's pretending like he's a viable candidate. I love this. Ben Shapiro responded saying, sadly, you've trashed yourself. You didn't need my help. It wasn't me. It wasn't the Jews. It was just you. Now, finally, Ye tweeted this before deleting it. As much as Ben and I disagree, I pray he joins me in saving our country. You know what they say, love your enema. I mean, uh, spelling's not my core competency when I'm sleepy. If Nick keeps tweeting from my account, the only platform I'll have left is Truth Social. Now, shortly after Kanye West made that tweet, he deleted it along with any other references to Nick Fuentes on his Twitter page. Uh, but I don't know what he's trying to say. I, I think it's evident that that entire tweet is incoherent. But if I had to search for grains of substance, and I use the word substance very charitably here, I think that he's low-key trying to make an anti-Semitic jab at Ben Shapiro. Because if you remember his tweet where he said he would go to Death Con 3 on the Jews, he also said he's sleepy right now, but when he wakes up, He'll go to DeathCon 3 on the Jews. So by him saying, I'm sleepy, perhaps that's a reference to his old tweet and him attacking Ben Shapiro, knowing that Ben Shapiro is Jewish and him being an anti-Semite saying, you know, I'm going to go to DeathCon 3 on Ben Shapiro. But moving on from the Ben Shapiro, Kanye West spat. So Milo went on Gab to explain that what Kanye West was trying to accomplish was indeed to push Donald Trump to the right and make him more evangelical. Imagine thinking that Donald Trump isn't far enough to the right. Like, you've got to be completely out of your mind. But nonetheless, this is what he wrote on Gab. Nick and Ye didn't discredit Trump's 2024 campaign with that dinner meeting. Trump did that himself by having the most boring, low-energy announcement speech in history. He did it by continuing to suck the boots of the Jewish powers that be who hate Jesus Christ, holy shit, hate our country, and see us all as disposable cattle according to their holy book. Trump will start putting Jesus Christ first in his campaign messaging, or he will be left in the dust of someone who does. It's that simple. We're done putting Jewish interests first. He's just saying it. It's time we put Jesus Christ first again in this country. Nothing and no one is going to get in our way to make that happen. I just want to remind you that this is someone who Kanye West is relying on to help run his 2024 campaign. And there are still people who claim that Kanye West said nothing wrong. He wasn't anti-Semitic. And yet he's aligning with people who are like, oh, yeah, we're done putting Jewish interests first. I mean, could they be any more explicit if they tried? 
Now, Nick Fuentes also seemingly has turned on Donald Trump following the meeting between the two of them where Trump was reportedly impressed with Fuentes saying Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene are being used as bait to lure the base back into supporting people like Kevin McCarthy, Ronna McDaniel and Rick Grinnell. I didn't leave the MAGA movement. The MAGA movement left me. What are Christian Americans going to get out of a McCarthy speakership or new Trump White House? Lower gas prices? Reduce the corporate tax rate? So the subtext is that Donald Trump is not in any way furthering this America first movement to move the U.S. closer to a white ethno state. Now, I don't know if Kanye West knows that that's what Nick Fuentes wants. Either way, there's enough evidence out there that Nick Fuentes is a straight up Nazi, that Kanye West maybe should have done his due diligence before meeting with him and taking him to meet with the former president. Either way, Nick Fuentes is basically saying that all of these people, the rhinos, including Rick Grinnell, who's a gay man, by the way, just supporting Trump, you're effectively supporting them. So you're not going to get the white ethno state that you wanted. You're not going to get a theocracy that you wanted by simply supporting Donald Trump again. Hence why they're kind of moving on to Kanye West, because Kanye West is the individual who is presumably going to enact a theocracy, at least according to his agenda and what he wants. I mean, constitutionally, that's not going to fly, but that's not going to stop Kanye West from trying to do that. Uh, again, like I I'm talking about Kanye West and all of these people as if they're functioning adults, but all of them have massive, massive mental illness issues. And I think that real religion alone is extremely destructive. But when a mentally ill person is going to subscribe to a religion, the danger just gets amplified. And so all of these people who I'm talking about here, like I'm trying to ascribe more coherency to their statements, but all of them aren't really making that much sense. All of these people are mentally ill, and I'm not saying that to be insulting or, or make a malicious statement. I'm saying that they have untreated mental illness and they need help, but they're not getting their, that help. So, you know, here they are influencing these headlines and potentially burning the MAGA movement to the ground, which I'm okay with. But at the same time, these people are normalizing hate and that's extremely bad. Now, Ye also turned his ire towards Elon Musk, who is the owner of Twitter and friend of Kanye West, who recently unbanned Kanye West after his anti-Semitic tirade. And he called out Elon Musk for refusing to unban Alex Jones. And the reason that he gives as to why Alex Jones hasn't been unbanned or should be unbanned is um, pretty on par for Kanye West. Another issue I have is the fact that Elon won't reinstate Alex Jones. Yeah, I agree. Alex Jones is a Christian, mm. but you have a person who doesn't believe that Christ is Lord going to buy an American media outlet and picking and choosing who can be on the platform and who can't be on the platform. Right. Jesus is Lord. Amen. So Alex Jones, who defamed the families of Sandy Hook victims, should be unbanned because he is a Christian. Now, what I love is that in that rant there against Elon Musk, there was an inherent criticism of capitalism there where um, Kanye West didn't like how uh, an American media outlet was bought and you have basically one billionaire picking and choosing who can and can't be on the platform. Yeah, that's what we call capitalism and why we shouldn't allow oligarchs to pretend as if they are the arbiters of free speech because we all know now 
that that is a load of horseshit. So either way, this is a really fascinating story because I like what I'm seeing in the sense that Kanye West is taking a blowtorch to the MAGA movement and he is quite literally fomenting a civil war within the GOP. He's getting Ben Shapiro to turn against Donald Trump. He's turning against Elon Musk. And I think that all of this infighting is very, very good for the country. When bad people essentially force their fans to draw lines and factionalize, this splinterization paves the way for normal people to form the majority and defeat these ghouls, either electorally or culturally or however way. But um, this is certainly a shit show. But even though what Kanye West unwittingly is doing is good for the country by factionalizing the GOP, his presence and visibility is dangerous because of the way he is so vile and explicitly anti-Semitic and who's now helping to normalize and popularize individuals like Nick Fuentes and Milo Yiannopoulos who are effectively Nazis. So that's where we're at in the United States of America where we have rapper presidential candidates beefing with former reality television show star presidential candidates and also attacking the billionaire owner of Twitter. It's just, it feels like the synopsis to a parody movie about America that was produced in 2013. But this is real life now and we're all living it. So either way, if this is a simulation or real, this is what we're experiencing and it's batshit fucking insane and I want off this ride. I want out of this timeline. I didn't. I thought I was more Malcolm X, but I find out I'm more MLK because as I'm getting hosed down every day by the press and financially, I'm just standing there. And when when I found out that they tried to put me in jail, it was like a dog was biting my arm, and I I I, I almost shed a tear, almost. But I still walked in stride through it. Yeah. I, I think I think they've been extremely unfair to you. I think. who was they though? We can't say who they is, can we? Press. I'm not using the. I don't, I don't use the word as the, as the way I guess you, you guys use. I'm, I'm talking. It is about them, it. though, isn't it? I mean, because <laughs> no. and, and because when you think <laughs> about not. it, consider it. In 2018. What do you mean it's not? It, what What do I mean? Like, uh, uh, okay, so how about? Are you leaving? Are you afraid of the press? He's gone. I'll say it right now. Um, you guys, I, I, you guys want to bring that stuff up. And then have think the we're discussion. not going to have a conversation. Like, have the discussion. Like you, you think yeah, he's going to come in here and say, here's my pain, here's my suffering. I'm going to say, I hear you. And then he's going to say, and it was Jewish people. And I'm going to be like, okay, but don't you consider it? So I'm not going to do this. I, I, I refuse. Go, uh, make sure he's cool. All right, go for it. Luke and I will have a conversation. You just watched Kanye West storm off of Tim Pool's show after Tim Pool thought that it was a good idea to platform not only him, but also two of his friends, one of which being Holocaust-denying Nazi Nick Fuentes and pedophile defender Milo Yiannopoulos. Now, during the live stream, you can see that Tim Pool's audience was posting L's since Tim Pool refused to go along with Kanye West's anti-Semitism. And shout out to Dr. Heem who shared this video, by the way. And I've just got to point out that this is the audience that so-called centrist Tim Pool has cultivated, where your own viewers are criticizing you and calling you out because you refuse to say anti-Semitic things, to go along with Kanye West's anti-Semitism. So yeah, maybe this is your indication that you should reverse course, but he's not going to do that. But more on Tim Pool later. So Kanye West, basically, it wasn't a very long interview. It was about less than 20 minutes, give or take. But the second he opened his mouth, predictably, he began to spew vile anti-Semitism. I just got to go right to the heart of this anti-Semite claim that's happening. 
this is something. If you read the definition, it it says you can't claim that there's multiple people inside of banks or in media that are all Jewish or you're anti-Semitic. And that's the truth. Like, it's the truth. What are we talking about? And what, 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 well, library, what do you mean? You mean... I'm saying, like, I've been labeled anti-Semite, right? So there's, there's different beliefs about our, our bloodlines, you know, like the documentary that Kyrie posted. And in general, America has been left ignorant and history has been changed. So when we start questioning things that question the indoctrination then you immediately get, you know, um, you said debanked or de what did you say happened to you or demonetized, deplatformed? De yeah, demonized, demonetized. And what's so beautiful about this time is everyone got to see what's really been happening. And now we can really understand, we can see that. Ron Emanuel was right next to Obama, and then Jared Kushner was right next to Trump. But so, you, so we're, we're we're getting right into it, I guess. Right? I was I was hoping to go for the news first before we got into all of this stuff. Uh, I think I think the issue is uh, one way to put it is you're expounding upon a localization issue that you've witnessed, right? Let me let me clarify. There are a handful of people that you see are Jewish in a certain place, and then you associate Judaism with the power. As a, whereas I view that as not relevant to it. Like, yeah, you're substantially more powerful than I am, but I don't view what you're doing as an issue of black people. Yeah, but have you ever heard the term the black vote? So it's okay to put us in one net, but it's not okay for me to put them in one net. Yeah, but I mean. That's the basis uh, uh, of the hypocrisy that people have been have been thinking about and knowing about and realizing for decades. We were all wondering how this dam was going to break. Everybody in the country was wondering, what, what is the root of this hypocrisy? Why can people talk about white people a certain way? Why can't they talk about that group a certain way? And uh, the, the, the most the, the, the wretched and wicked and oppressive prevailing orthodoxy of uh, cancel culture, well, it turned out that the one thing that was going to break the dam was the biggest star in the world. And it took the biggest star in the world to do it. In other words, everyone now knows for sure that Jewish people control everything because Kanye West proved that. The evidence being that he said anti-Semitic things and was subsequently canceled for lack of a better word for saying anti-Semitic things. So that's that's proof. No, it's not Jewish people that got you canceled, Kanye West. It's you who got yourself canceled. I, for one, am not Jewish, but I'm canceling you, I guess. I don't want to listen to your music. I used to be a fan, but I can't support hate. I can't support vile anti-Semitism, and I don't support you. Now, every time Kanye West opened his mouth, as I alluded to earlier, he couldn't help himself. It was like anti-Semitic word vomit, case in point. But when I would work on homeless shelters and ideas, I'd have a contractor, who won't say what race, um, <laughs> and ridiculous. Now he later goes on to explain in this long and meandering story that essentially he owes back taxes and found out that he might go to jail because of that this morning and because of said back taxes that he owes and potential jail time. Well, this is Jewish people who are doing that 
to him, apparently. Now, of course, the way that he explained this made no sense whatsoever, but essentially, Kanye West at this point is the personification of that meme of the guy who's throwing the stick in between his bicycle spokes, uh, falling over, and then saying, damn, why did blank make me do this? In this instance, it's Kanye West with Jewish people. Any bad thing that has ever happened to him ever is specifically the result of Jewish people. That's actually what he believes. Now, this isn't surprising because Kanye West has made it abundantly clear that he is a vile bigot. So the question is, why would a self-proclaimed centrist like Tim Pohl choose to platform someone with vile views knowing that he could help to popularize and mainstream these beliefs? And it's not, it's not just Kanye West, to be clear, who he's platforming. He's platforming Nick Fuentes and Milo Yiannopoulos as well. So Tim Pohl, we know why he's doing this, right? It's obviously for the clicks, it's for the views. In fact, before this stream went live, he hyped it up on Twitter, tweeting out this photo with the caption, tonight. And he was also trending on Twitter, so he knows exactly what he's doing. He knows why he did this. And to his credit, he does push back against Kanye West throughout the duration of this interview. But still, platforming Kanye West you know that this is a bad idea. In fact, he admits that other right-wingers told him that this was a bad idea, but he did it anyway. And listen to the excuse that he uses. Before the show, obviously, I'm getting a bunch of messages from people. People are hitting me up and they're like, you shouldn't host them. They're anti-Semitic. They're right supremacists. They're racist. I do find the idea, uh, I do find it funny or weird or whatever that, you know, Nick, they call you a white supremacist. You're here working with or for, you know, one of the most powerful black men, one of the wealthiest and most famous. But, uh, a lot of people were saying on the right specifically don't platform them mm -hmm. and i said well i want to i want to understand what they're thinking and why they're thinking it they're part of they're involved in what may be the biggest news story of the past week and we have an opportunity to sit down and, and talk because the them. red media controls both sides it just said it as simple as possible jared kushner was next to trump ron emmanuel was next to obama and that right there tim is why your right-wing friends who warned you that this was a bad idea were proven correct you knew what you were platforming you knew what you were getting yourself into, but you decided to prioritize views and clicks over the impact that you could have on society. And um, yeah, here we are. And he actually said during his defense for platforming these folks that um, people are claiming that Nick Fuentes is a white supremacist, but how can he be a white supremacist if he's here with a black man? He's literally using the I can't be racist, I have black friends defense on Nick Fuentes' behalf when Nick Fuentes didn't even ask him to defend him, but I mean, he's going out of his way to defend a white supremacist. And I'm sorry, I've got to touch on him platforming Milo Yiannopoulos earlier on in the episode, and I did watch all of it, by the way. Milo Yiannopoulos alluded to the fact that he was also on Tim Pool's program, not that that long ago and it's interesting because last week i thought that tim pool was really concerned about groomers he claimed that club q that was shot up hosted a grooming event and then when people explained to him how this was a lie that was harmful he laughed it off and doubled down but yet for views and clicks tim pool decided to bring on an actual groomer or at least someone who defends grooming and outright pedophilia let me remind you about who Milo Yiannopoulos is. The New York Times explained in a 2017 article, quote, no, 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 you're misunderstanding what pedophilia means, Mr. Yiannopoulos says on the tape in which he is talking to radio hosts in a video chat. Quote, pedophilia is not a sexual attraction to somebody 13 years old who is sexually mature. Pedophilia is attraction to children who have not reached puberty, he adds, dismissing the fact that 13-year-olds are children. The notion of consent, he says, is arbitrary and oppressive. At one 
one point in the video, an unknown speaker says that the behavior being defended by Mr. Yiannopoulos is akin to molestation by Catholic priests. Mr. Yiannopoulos responds in an ironic tone by crediting a priest for having helped develop his sexual technique. Hey, Tim, there's the groomer that you and your right-wing buddies have been so concerned about. He's right there on your program. He explicitly defended pedophilia. And you're just okay with that? You're okay with platforming this person and rehabilitating his career after he was rightfully canceled for defending pedophilia? You're helping to resurrect the career of Milo Yiannopoulos, but yet you had no problem claiming that the LGBTQ plus nightclub, which was shot up, hosted a grooming event with no evidence that there was grooming or sexual molestation going on. But yet you have no problem benefiting off of an actual defender of pedophilia if it leads to you getting views and clicks. It's just genuinely despicable. And the reason why I think that so many people, Tim, were frustrated by your tweets and your whole anti-groomer rant is because you should know better. Everyone knows that you're not a centrist, but you at least are seemingly more reasonable than other right-wing propagandists. You know that not all queer people are groomers. You know that the grooming bullshit by the GOP is fabricated, but yet you played along with it. All because you know who your audience is. You know that that's what your audience wants to hear, so you're giving them what they want for views and clicks. So people were disappointed in you because we expected better of you, myself included. But I guess that that is, just makes me naive. But I mean, this is now what Tim Pool is doing, platforming violent anti-Semites, including Holocaust-denying white supremacists and pedophile defenders, all so he can get his name out there, all for clicks and clout. And it's despicable, but this is the climate in the United States media, uh, where if you do good work, you really don't get recognized. But if you, um, you know, you platform somebody who is going to give you views and clicks, then that's your ticket to success. It's truly gross, but this sort of thing is incentivized. The more disgusting, egregious person that you bring on, the more eyeballs that you'll draw to the screen. So that's where we're at. You know, I'm not surprised that Kanye West said anti-Semitic things on Tim Pool's show, but it's just, we should really look at the people who are choosing to continue to platform Kanye West and give him the microphone after they know exactly what to expect from him at this point. Twitter's billionaire owner Elon Musk is now publicly feuding with Apple. Although the feud seems to only be going one way, he is very public about the ways in which he disagrees with Apple and is butthurt by them. But Apple, even though they're not necessarily saying anything publicly, they are privately making moves that could indeed hurt Twitter's bottom line. More importantly for Elon Musk, his bottom line. So where did this all stem? It started with Elon Musk calling out Apple because he was butthurt that they decided to postpone advertisements on Twitter. He tweets, Apple has mostly stopped advertising on Twitter. Do they hate free speech in America? And then he adds, what's going on here, Tim Cook? Now I've got to say, I'm not necessarily the most business-minded person, but publicly tweeting at brands and asking them why they suspended their advertising is, <laughs> isn't necessarily going to be... Uh, accomplishing what you want to accomplish, which I, I guess the goal here is to bring them back. Maybe it's just to publicly shame them into caving. I just, I, I feel like maybe if you are a billionaire and you're a business genius, you would see that this isn't necessarily going to help. But 
because he was angry that they dared to postpone advertisements on Twitter, and we'll get to why brands are doing that in a moment, he then decided to go on a tweet storm where he called out Apple for a plethora of other reasons. And I don't actually disagree with some of the things that he calls them out for here. He responded to library.com asking who else has Apple censored after they wrote, during COVID, Apple demanded our apps filter some search terms from being returned. If we did not filter the terms, our apps would not be allowed in the store. Apple may make good products, but they have been opposed to free speech for some time. Now, he also highlighted the time when when Fortnite compared Apple's monopolistic practices to George Orwell's 1984. He then published a poll asking if Apple should publish all censorship actions it has taken that affect its customers. And he added, Apple has also threatened to withhold Twitter from its app store, but won't tell us why. And adds, did you know Apple puts a secret 30% tax on everything you buy through their app store? And finally, he tweeted out this meme indicating that he'd rather go to war with Apple than pay their 30% fee. So what started as Elon Musk condemning Apple for not advertising on Twitter has led to him calling them out for a plethora of other reasons. And now he's basically saying, I don't want to pay the 30% uh, fee that you're charging. So this is him essentially saying, okay, well, if you want to suspend advertisements, maybe I don't want to pay that 30% fee. Now, as I alluded to earlier, Apple is privately making some moves. We'll get to that. But let me just for a moment explain why this is good. I like to see the world's richest man go to war with a trillion dollar company. I think that this is good for me because this could potentially harm both companies, both of their bottom lines. And I think that that is a good thing. So the more that Elon Musk instigates these wars with other brands by publicly condemning them, it may be an unintended good thing that has come of Elon Musk buying Twitter. I both like that brands are suspending advertising on Twitter and also like that he's calling them out for suspending advertisements on Twitter. Whatever gets these giant monopolistic companies to beef with each other is A-OK -okay with me. Now, let me just for a moment explain why a lot of brands aren't advertising on Twitter. It's because of Elon Musk. He interacts almost exclusively with far-right accounts on Twitter, and he also posts pictures promoting irresponsible gun ownership and probably worse, caffeine-free Diet Coke, which in my opinion makes him a psychopath. But in addition to that, he's also made a lot of anti-Semitic and Nazi dog whistles. Yes, you heard that right, Nazi dog whistles. As Eric Schmelzer writes, Elon Musk has tweeted 88, the white supremacist code for Heil Hitler, to which they replied 14, code for their 14 words, trotted out the Jewish puppet master trope, and then posted a wink to anti-Semites with a cartoon similar to the one they use in reference to Vinman. Now, as you can see, these are the tweets in question, and basically Nazis thought that that was a dog whistle to them. That was a wink and a nod to them. Now, that doesn't definitively prove that Elon Musk is a Nazi. He does have plausible deniability. But when you take into consideration the fact that he exclusively interacts with far-right accounts and has vocalized very conservative views, it's not necessarily out of the question to think that maybe he's sympathetic to these far-right individuals and there's enough there there to where brands just don't want that stink associated with them. Hence why they're choosing to pause advertisements on Twitter 
in droves. Now, the thing about Apple is that they're concerned with the platform due to the proliferation of hate since Elon Musk took over. As CNBC explains, representatives for unnamed app stores, which include Apple's App Store as well as Google's Play for Android devices, reached out to Twitter earlier this month after Musk took over, and the site saw a wave of hate speech, according to a New York Times op-ed by Yul Roth, Twitter's former head of trust and safety. Phil Schiller, Apple's former chief marketer who oversees app review, apparently deleted his Twitter account earlier this month after Musk took over. Philip Shoemaker, the former head of Apple's app review and current CEO of Identity.com, said Schiller's move to delete his account reminded him of a company making moves to prepare for war. He believes that Apple's app review department is keeping a close eye on Twitter's content moderation under Musk to see if more questionable content, such as porn, slips through. Apple's recent moves are like when you remove troops from a country before you attack, Shoemaker said. You're thinking you're going to have to pull these apps from the store. Now, pornographic material, to my understanding, was always allowed on Twitter. So it is a little bit bizarre that Apple is seemingly all of a sudden saying, hey, Elon Musk, why are you why are you allowing porn on the website? I get the hate because that is a new phenomenon. I mean, it's not new to Twitter. Twitter has always been a hateful, steaming pile of shit. But the increase of hate after Elon Musk took over is what these brands are most worried about. Uh, but the porn thing doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. But either way, Apple has already a lot of ammunition in order to get rid of Elon Musk just because of the surge of hate and given previous history. As CNBC continues, Apple requires apps with user-generated content such as Twitter to have strong content moderation systems in place. Insufficient content moderation was the reason why Apple booted Parler, a smaller Twitter competitor in 2020, Musk has reportedly vastly downsized Twitter's content moderation workforce. So when you combine the surge of hate speech on Twitter following Elon Musk's takeover, along with the uh, content moderation team essentially being Thanos snapped by Elon Musk, you can see how Apple already has a lot of ammunition against Twitter. And if they did it to Parler, odds are they would do it to Twitter as well, and if he's going to, in addition to that, pull an Epic Games and say, I'm not gonna pay the 30% fee, well then that's another reason that they might boot Twitter from the store. Now, I don't necessarily know how this is all going to play out either way. I, for one, support Elon Musk going after Apple because these are both terrible companies run by terrible people, and if they somehow bring each other down and tank each other's stocks in the process of this public spat, I think that is good for the country. Even though I'm an avid user of Twitter, I genuinely enjoy watching Elon Musk run the entire platform into the ground because he is destroying this notion that a meritocracy is a thing. It's not, it never has been a thing, and no, talent doesn't directly translate into success. He's proving that he's not a genius, in fact, he's a gigantic dumbass. And he's not just a dumbass, we're learning how petulant he is. So we know, already, that he is distraught about the prospect of advertisers fleeing the platform thanks to him. But I didn't know how desperate he was, how low he was willing to go to get advertisers back. And when you hear about his strategy for trying to get advertisers to stay, it's shocking to me that this genius thinks this is actually going to be 
successful for him. Financial Times reports Elon Musk's tumultuous reign at Twitter has led to a damaging rift with top brands and marketers, with the social media company's $5 billion a year advertising business hit by tensions over content moderation and resources. Multiple top advertising agencies and media buyers told the Financial Times that nearly all of the big brands they represent have paused spending on the social media platform, citing alarm at Elon Musk's ad hoc approach to policing content and decision to act many of its ad sales team. Musk, meanwhile, has sought to personally call chief executives of some brands that have curbed advertising in order to berate them, according to one senior industry figure, leading others to instead reduce their spend to the bare minimum required so as to avoid further confrontation with the billionaire entrepreneur. After several waves of job cuts and departures, Twitter's ads business team has shrunk so much that many agencies no longer have any point of contact at the company and have received little to no communication in recent weeks, according to four industry insiders. That is so pathetic. He's literally calling up CEOs and executives and he's berating them. I mean, imagine thinking that this was a good idea. And even if it was a good idea, even if this would be a successful strategy for him, it's just embarrassing. It's it's pathetic. It's it's petulant. But it's very on brand for Elon Musk. Now, we've talked about this before on the show, and I think it's pretty obvious. But the reason why brands don't want to be associated with Twitter is because of Elon Musk. He himself has tweeted conspiracy theories and fake news. He chums it up with far-right extremists on the platform. And also, with the lack of content moderation, they just don't want their brands associated with the stink of Twitter. And to make matters even worse, on November 23rd, Twitter quietly stopped enforcing policies related to COVID-19 misinformation, meaning that people can now just straight up lie about the pandemic and vaccines with no repercussions whatsoever. In other words, you can tweet out that the COVID-19 vaccines are murdering people and nothing is going to happen. You won't be suspended. You can get away with anything. He doesn't understand that Twitter, even though Twitter is not real life, it can have a real world impact. And COVID-19 misinformation, misinformation with regard to any medical data or statistics, that can be catastrophic. But yet he's like, eh, it's okay. Probably because he's a conspiracy theorist himself. Um, now, you might think, well, maybe this is a bit of a trade-off, right? Because even if he is allowing misinformation to potentially flourish or even thrive on the website, well, at least we get more free speech. Except that's not true either. As The Intercept reports, left-wing voices are silenced on Twitter as far-right trolls advise Elon Musk. Elon Musk appears to have outsourced decisions about who to ban from Twitter to the platform's right-wing extremists. Now, this article goes on to explain how Elon Musk has suspended anti-fascist accounts like Chad Loader and in independent researcher whose documentation of the January 6th insurrection has led to the arrest of a proud boy. Vishal Pratap Singh, who reports on extremist organizations in Southern California, has also been suspended. The Elm Fork John Brown Gun Club, which is an anti-fascist organization that defends LGBTQ plus spaces from fascistic harassment and intimidation, they've been suspended along with Crime Think, another anti-fascist collective. And I just want to emphasize here that it's not just that he's suspending more left-leaning journalists and anti-fascist accounts. It's that he's doing this at the direction 
of right-wingers. The Intercept explains several prominent anti-fascist organizers and journalists have had their accounts suspended in the past week after right-wing operatives appealed directly to Musk to ban them and far-right internet trolls flooded Twitter's complaint system with false reports about terms of service violations. All four accounts had been singled out for criticism by Andy No, a far-right writer whose conspiratorial, error-riddled reporting on left-wing protests and social movements fuels the mass delusion that a handful of small anti fascist groups are part of an imaginary shadow army called Antifa. In a public exchange on Twitter on Friday, Musk invited No to report Antifa accounts that should be suspended directly to him. As The Intercept reported last year, No had previously tried and failed to have Loader suspended from Twitter and also joined a botched attempt to have a court order the researcher to stop tweeting about one of the Proud Boys who took part in the Capitol riot. In other words, Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter has been a boon for fascism, but not so much free speech. And yet, he has a surprised Pikachu face as advertisers are fleeing the sinking ship that is Twitter. You've effectively turned it into parlor, my dude. Why would any brand want to associate with that? I mean, it's just, it's honestly baffling to think that he lacks self-awareness so much that he's still confused about why brands are not buying advertisements on Twitter to the point where he's berating executives. It's so delusional. I mean, this man is a dumbass and he has Andy No essentially being Randall from Recess. Remember the snitch who would always tell on the other kids? He has Andy No snitching on leftist accounts so he can personally ban them. I mean, it's a right-wing cesspool and this is why brands aren't coming back and they won't come back probably until you just stop making the website a far-right hellhole. Why don't you ask the owners of Gab and Telegram and Parler and Truth Social even why they're having a difficult time attracting advertisers, why it's so hard for them to stay afloat. It's because brands don't want to advertise on websites when there's this proliferation of hate speech and anti-Semitism and fascism in general. What brand would want to associate with that when they know that there'd be backlash? It's just, again, it's genuinely perplexing that he's confused about the way that this works. I, like, again, I'm not a business person, right? He's supposed to be the business genius, but even I can see that a brand obviously isn't going to increase their profits by reaching out and advertising on platforms where it's just right-wing extremists. So, yeah, he kind of made his bed and he's lying in it and he's trying to cope, but it's difficult because, again, his number one concern is making money, so he's trying to play it off and make it seem like everything is copacetic and everything's going the way he wants it to go. Either way, it's really fun to watch, and I hope that Twitter continues to um, sink. Because even if I use the website and I don't necessarily want it to go the way of the Dodo, I've got to admit it's very entertaining to see the way he's burning the entire platform to the ground. Interference in an election in the United States of America, Mr. Gates, is a capital offense. It's considered treason, punishable by the death penalty. You are the butt of our jokes. What, you got, a, you got a, another chicken farm that needs to burn down, Mr. Hickman? The biggest concern I have is if this election is certified, the only parties that will benefit from this are the cartels.
You just got a small taste of the insanity that occurred on Monday as the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors convened to certify the results of the 2022 election, which they're obligated to do by law, by the way. Now, I've got more footage for you for later, but the reason why they are showing up is because predictably they are crying fraud and Carrie Lake is refusing to concede the election. Now, to make matters worse, Donald Trump also fanned the flames of conspiracy by tweeting this on Truth Social. Massive numbers of broken voting machines in Republican districts on election day. Mechanics sent in to fix them made them worse. Kerry had to be taken to a Democrat area, which was working perfectly to vote. Her opponent ran the election. This is yet another criminal voting operation. So obvious. Kerry Lake should be installed governor of Arizona. He actually said this. This is almost as bad as the 2020 presidential election, which the unselect committee refuses to touch because they know it was fraudulent. Now, first of all, I just want to point out that the former president and current frontrunner runner for the GOP's 2024 presidential nomination is calling for somebody who lost an election to be installed as the governor of a state. That is really just, I mean, it's on brand for Donald Trump, but still to see him say that, to see a former president call for authoritarianism in effect is something that we should never become accustomed to. Now, what he's saying here is predictably untrue. There were indeed glitches that took place in Maricopa County, but that did not lead to voters being disenfranchised. As the New York Times explains, a series of technical glitches disrupted ballot counting on Tuesday at about one in four voting centers in Republican-led Maricopa County, Arizona, rekindling embers of baseless voter fraud claims in the right-wing media and politicians. Officials in Maricopa, one of the nation's most populous counties, and a focus of efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election, said the problem affected ballot tabulation machines in about 60 of the county's 223 voting centers. In the afternoon, the county said it had isolated the problem. Printers were not making dark enough markings on the ballots. Bill Gage, chairman of the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors, and Stephen Richard, the county recorder, both Republicans, said the problems were disappointing, but that voters could still cast ballots and that that nobody was being denied a vote. Now, despite the presence of glitches, there was no evidence of fraud. But still, election deniers exerted pressure on these counties to not certify the results, which is something that they are obligated to do. Now, to make matters worse, to further fan the flames of the conspiracy mongers, which, I mean, individuals like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Charlie Kirk did, well, the machines in question were a uh, Dominion voting machines tabulators, which, of course, they're going to have a problem with that. But Dominion machines weren't even responsible for the glitches. It was the printers and an issue with the toner not making the bubbles dark enough to be picked up and read by the Dominion voting machines. But it's not like... If a Dominion machine couldn't read these ballots, they just tossed them into the garbage. They were still counted. Every single county has a process in place for this very thing. So the votes were still counted. Nobody was disenfranchised. And these glitches are not a new phenomenon in American elections. Let me remind you of this video that went massively viral back in 2012 when a vote switched from Obama to Romney. It did happen, but it wasn't due to malfeasance or indicative of widespread fraud. The glitch occurred because the touchscreen wasn't properly calibrated. It was taken out, recalibrated, and put back in service. The same thing happened in 2008 as well after people reported their votes switching from Obama to McCain. So these glitches are going to happen. When you're using technology, it's an inevitability. It doesn't necessarily mean that that is automatically going to lead 
to fraud. In fact, the glitches did not lead to fraud in these instances. But of course, if you're already predisposed to think in a conspiratorial manner, you can see why these folks think that that's suspicious. And when you have individuals like Carrie Lake and Donald Trump and Charlie Kirk and Marjorie Taylor Greene fanning the flames, of course, they're not going to believe people. They're not going to believe that these are just glitches. They're going to think that the votes are being stolen because they were already going to believe that regardless. This just gave them more ammunition. Now, as AZ Family reports, Republican officials in Cochise County refused Monday to certify the 2022 election ahead of the deadline amid pressure from prominent Republicans to reject a vote count that had Democrats winning for U.S. Senate, governor, and other statewide races. Meanwhile, in Maricopa County, the Board of Supervisors approved the canvas of the 2022 general election Monday afternoon at the end of an hours-long meeting that began with an executive session at 8 a.m., followed by public comments. So Maricopa County did what it was legally obligated to do, but before they convened on Monday, there were lots of protesters outside, but things really went off the rails during the public comment session. And um, be warned, this is certainly unhinged, but it's kind of entertaining in a sad way. Nonetheless, I'll shut up and let you watch. I came here today to get an up close and personal look at the seven traitors to the United States Constitution. Okay, again, are please. Sitting at that desk. You were set to receive a subpoena this morning at 9.30. What did you do? You called your meeting for 8 a.m. What are you hiding? I will not repeat your election crimes. I will just say, not certifying the machines constitutes a form of interference. And in case no one has enlightened you people, Interference in an election in the United States of America, Mr. Gates, is a capital offense. It's considered treason, punishable by the death penalty. So it's obvious why you, Hobbs, and Deep State Ducey are desperate to keep your cronies in office. The voting booth is supposed to be your time is a up. time for a peaceful revolution. Those who make your, your peaceful revolution impossible make violent revolution necessary. Your, your and if you willingly certify this election, look at it. Every single one of us who's a poll center right net worker right now is making fun of you. Every single one of us. You are the butt of our jokes. Disaster. Now, get, here's your chance. Validate yourself. Save yourself. Be the hero for once in your life. Slave. That's what I am to this system, to your corruption. This is outrageous. This is a national crisis, and you're giving people two minutes to address a national crisis. And the way that you guys can just sit there, it's disgusting. Watching you pledge allegiance to my flag was disgusting, the way that you sold us out. So a curse upon you, a curse upon all of you, you smug, smug people. What, you got, a, you got a, another chicken farm that needs to burn down, Mr. Hickman? Am I bothering you? Just, because this election please. bothered me. So let me re let me frame this right. We're not framing this properly. This is a war between good and evil. And you all 
represent evil, including you. I want to look in your eyes, especially you. I see the way that you look at people when they come up here and speak truth. Such arrogance dripping from your mouth, just like the smile on your face right now. You guys represent evil, good versus evil. All you God-fearing men and women out here need to understand that and get up every day and start donning your body armor before you step on this battlefield. We cannot continue to fight this war with these earthly weapons and continue to talk on deaf ears. We must get God in the middle of this thing. These men are born sinners, lying from their earliest words. They are poisonous, deadly snakes, cobras that close their ears to the most expert of charmers. Oh God, break off their fangs. Tear out the teeth of these young lions, Lord. Let them disappear like water into thirsty ground. Make their weapons useless in their hands. Let them be as snails that dissolve into slime. And as those who die at birth, who never see the sun, God will sweep away both old and young. He will destroy them more quickly than wicked men. More quickly then a crook cooking pot can feel the blazing fire of thorns beneath it. The godly shall rejoice in the triumph of the right. They shall walk in the blood-stained fields of slaughtered wicked men. When there is moral rot within a nation, its government topples easily. This whole process of the two minutes is a violation of our First Amendment right to air, to, to, con to petition our government and address our grievances. You have no right to limit our time while you give government officials that work for us all the time in the world that they need to talk about what they're gaslighting us about. The second thing I want to say is everything that Mr. Richard was talking about, early ballots, mail-in ballot, uh, it's a violation of the Constitution. Have you read Article 7, Suffrage and Elections? I don't even know what to say about that. They are obviously deranged people, and some of the things that they were saying is obviously unacceptable, but yet... This is where we're at, where a number of people in this country have become so radicalized that they'll say things like that in public, even if they know that other people are going to see and hear them. Now, one thing that I wanted to share that was cathartic is the response from the supervisors who blamed Carrie Lake for fanning the flames here. And I was disappointed that so many people obviously didn't come here to get answers because we were here to pr provide the answers if they were willing to listen. But after they got through making their speeches, they left. You look at the Twitter feed of Kerry Lake and the Kerry Lake War Room, they put up 28 posts on Twitter of 28 people speaking with concerns and comments and yelling at us. But when it came down to answering every one of those questions, not one tweet from Kerry Lake explaining why there was the problems at the polling site, why there were some lies, not one explanation to the voters. It, it's a, a perfect example of Carrie Lake not wanting to tell the voters the truth. She doesn't. She wants to tell one side of the story. She posted 28 different tweets. I looked at it right now, but not one tweet. Once the public comment was done, that was it. They shut it off, and that's all they want their supporters to know. They don't want to let the voters know the truth, and that's what's so frustrating about this. Our elections were safe, secure, accurate. Everyone had the right to exercise the most fundamental right they have, the right to vote. And when you have folks that are throwing rocks at the system but not wanting to tell the voters the truth, that's unconscionable. Shame on her. I mean, the frustration was palpable there, but for good reason. 
when you have these issues that are taking place that are already incredibly frustrating and worrying to voters, rightfully so, it doesn't help when you have people who are sore losers refuse to accept defeat and claim that they were robbed and these voters had their votes taken away from them. It's just, it's a really unfortunate situation. But the silver lining is that things could have been a lot worse. I was anticipating many stop the steal elections across the country, but it seems like Arizona is really the only place where you see a really loud challenge to, to the results of the election. So this is where we're at, where conspiracy theorists are, um, they're getting egged on by folks like Donald Trump and Carrie Lake. So in my opinion, the quicker that individuals like Donald Trump and Carrie Lake become irrelevant politically, the quicker that we as a country can move on and democracy can recover from the blow that was dealt to it by Donald Trump. Well, it looks like greedy rail corporations who have been exploiting their employees for years now are going to win in this overall dispute that could lead to a rail worker strike because of the Biden administration essentially forcing workers to accept a subpar deal that they're not happy with, that most rail workers rejected. Now, this is really, I think, a pivotal moment for the Biden administration because he has claimed that he's the most pro-union president ever. But when push came to shove, he sided with the exploitative corporations as opposed to the workers. So I want to give you a really robust picture of what's happening because it's very easy to get duped by propaganda. Because when we hear about the potential rail worker strike, there's always this fear-mongering about the economy and how destructive that strike would be. And that's true. We'll get to that in a moment here. But the blame, it seems like mainstream media wants to blame workers exclusively when the blame, if this strike does occur, rests squarely on the shoulders of these corporations who are exploiting their workers and trying to do everything to increase profits to the detriment of their workers' health and well-being. So basically, rail corporations have slashed their workforce by 29% over the course of the last couple of years, and they've increased profits, and what have they done with that money? Well, they've bought back their own stocks. Now, in the event they were slashing their workforce and increasing benefits for existing workers, that would be one thing. I mean, it's still pretty shitty because you're forcing workers to pick up extra slack because you're cutting costs, but they're not doing that. They're simply forcing their workers to do more all so they can increase shareholder value, all so they can make more money and get richer. It's just corporate greed, plain and simple. And as a result of them doing this, cutting the workforce, not only have they destroyed the morale for their workers, they've made them miserable. They don't have sick leave. They have been working so much hours that they don't even get to see their families. And on top of that, this has led to them exacerbating supply chain issues. It's increased inflation. So when corporations are doing this, when their greed is getting out of control, I think it's incumbent on the most pro-union president ever to rein them in. But that's not what's happening here. But before we get to that, the Biden administration did intervene to try to broker a deal between the rail corporations and the rail workers, but they decided to reject that deal because it doesn't address their core concern, which is paid sick leave and an overall quality of life improvement because you can't keep working yourself to death 
and be happy. Like, this is unsustainable. But nonetheless, these were the details of the tentative deal brokered by the Biden administration. As the prospect explains, the September tentative agreement included a 24% pay raise by 2024, annual $1,000 bonuses, and no increases to healthcare costs. Looked at alone, those specific details are worthwhile. But at the heart of the matter are attendance policies. Previous reporting has detailed how railroad workers have suffered mental and physical health decay due to erratic scheduling which prevents workers from attending medical appointments. Union leaders originally wanted 15 days of paid sick leave. After negotiations in September, they settled for one sick day while removing penalties for time missed due to illness or a medical emergency. So that last point there is crucial. They asked for 15 sick days and they got one in this tentative deal. Now, at face value, it sounds great because they're getting a pay increase, but not all worker rights issues have to do with pay the quality of their lives is what's at stake here and they're asking for better working conditions to where if they have to call in sick they're not going to be penalized and the penalties are seemingly going away but one sick day means that if you're out of work for more than a day you're SOL, you're shit out of luck. So ultimately, they rejected this deal. In These Times explains, the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen narrowly ratified the agreement with 53.5% of members voting in favor, while the deal was rejected by just over 50% of train and engine service members of the Sheet Metal Air Rail and Transportation Workers Transportation Division, SMART-TD. SMART-TD joins three other rail unions that voted down the tentative agreement, the BMWED, the Brotherhood of Railroad Signalmen and the International Brotherhood of Boilermakers. Absent a new agreement, the four unions that rejected the deal, which together represent approximately 55% of the unionized U.S. rail labor force, are set to strike on December 9th. The BLET and the other eight rail unions that already ratified the deal have pledged to honor the picket lines should there be a work stoppage. The four unions poised to strike represent around 60,000 workers, and if members of other rail unions refused to cross the picket line, the number of those not working could rise to over 115,000. In other words, while a majority of unions have accepted the deal, well, the smaller unions that rejected it represent the majority of rail workers. So this is significant. A majority of workers said no to this tentative deal that was brokered by the Biden administration. Now, in the event they were to strike, the media is correct that this would be catastrophic to the U.S. economy. It'd result in about $2 billion lost economic output per day and even affect U.S. water supply, as Truthout explains. But when you listen to the way that mainstream media pundits are talking about this, they're putting the burden and the culpability on the workers because they just see, oh, they're getting a pay raise and they're rejecting this. So they're the ones who are unreasonable, not these greedy rail corporations who are forcing their workers to work even if they're sick and offering them no sick days or more more than one sick day, rather. Um, so I just want to give you a small example. This is a quick clip. Uh, this is an interview with Michael Baldwin. He's the president of the Brotherhood of Railway Signalmen. And listen to the way that the CNN anchor frames the situation to imply that the rail workers are the ones being unreasonable here. It is, though, these increases are higher than, than most American workers. National wage growth, uh, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, wages and salaries increased about 5% for the 12-month period ending in September 22. This would, 2022, does not meet all your demands, but it's higher than most American workers are getting. 
not everything has to do with money. Sure, in most negotiations between workers and corporations, yes, the crux of their concerns is pay. But in this instance, they're saying we're working so much that we can't live. We're missing doctor's appointments because we don't have sick leave. That's the crux of their concerns. But CNN and other news outlets, to be clear, this is just one example, but a microcosm of a bigger issue. They're essentially implying that if these workers do not accept this deal, which doesn't meet their demands, then they're the ones responsible for the potential economic destruction that a strike might cause. It's not the corporations who have increased their profits who refuse to offer sick time to their own workers. No, it's the workers who are the ones who should be blamed. That's the subtext if you read a lot of mainstream news articles about this. Now, Biden, obviously, as president, wants to see that the economy is not affected by this. So he has an interest in making sure that a deal gets approved. So what can happen here? Well, as Brett Wilkins of Common Dreams explains, under the Railway Labor Act of 1926, which critics have long slammed as anti-worker, Congress can pass a joint resolution that would force employees to stay on the job. By signaling such a measure, labor advocates say Biden would be betraying his claim, reiterated in Monday's statement, to be a pro-labor president. Now, what people don't know is that, yes, Congress does have the power to effectively force these workers to not strike and to accept the subpar deal, even if they didn't agree to the terms. But the Biden administration can also call on Congress to pass a bill that is more favorable to workers. Believe it or not, they don't have to side with the corporations in this instance. They can side with the workers. And this is one of those instances where you absolutely should side with workers, given the fact that these rail corporations absolutely can afford to give their workers sick leave. As Bernie Sanders pointed out via Twitter, last year, the rail industry made a record-breaking $20 billion in profits after cutting their workforce by 30% over the last six years. Meanwhile, rail workers have zero guaranteed paid sick days. Congress must stand with rail workers. Furthermore, Bernie Sanders Majority Staff Director Warren Gunnels adds it would cost 680 million dollars to provide 15 days of paid sick leave to rail workers and prevent a lockout that would cost the economy two billion dollars a day buffett is the owner of bnsf rail and is worth 110 billion dollars so on its face 688 million dollars is a very large cost for a company and of course they're gonna fight that but when you juxtapose that with the billions in profit that they made the the previous year how can you possibly say with a straight face that the workers are the ones being unreasonable here so this is a turning point for the biden administration he has a choice to make will he side with workers or the greedy corporations who are screwing over their own employees and you'd be shocked to learn that Biden chose to side with these corporations. In a White House statement, he's calling on Congress to adopt the tentative agreement that rail workers voted down, adding that a majority of unions in the industry approved of the deal, but leaving out the crucial fact that a majority of workers rejected the deal. And in a statement by Pelosi's office, she announced that the House will do just that with, quote, no poison pills or changes, meaning that there's not going to be any improvements to meet the needs of workers. And she also had the nerve to patronize and refer to Biden as our proudly pro-union president after he royally screwed over rail workers at the behest of these greedy corporations. It's just insufferable. To me, when you look at the details here, this is an easy choice. You don't side with these corporations if you want to stop a strike. You side with the workers because their demands here are reasonable. They just want quality of life improvements. They want 15 sick days. That's all that they're asking for, and they couldn't get that, and yet you're forcing them to accept a deal that isn't even meeting their most basic demands. Now, why would 
the president, who is supposedly the most pro-union president in American history, side with these corporations? Well, let's hear from Matt Weaver. He's a rail worker, and I think he put it best. Weaver noted that Congress could choose to force the railroads to accept an agreement more beneficial towards workers. Quote, I'd like to see a lot of pressure from Congress on the carriers, he said, but they have a lot of money, they lobby a lot, and do some campaign finance work that we just can't afford. So in other words, because these rail corporations have all the money, well, in our capitalist system, that also directly translates into them having all of the power as well. Now, people may try to defend Biden and claim that, you know, he really had no choice. His hand was forced here. But he wasn't taking the stance before. As More Perfect Union points out via Twitter, in 1992, Senator Joe Biden voted against ending a major rail strike. He argued that by intervening, Congress would be rewarding the railroad companies for years of bad faith negotiation. Yesterday, President Biden asked Congress to intervene to prevent a rail strike. They continue, as a senator, Biden criticized intervention from Congress and the White House, saying it assured the rail companies that the odds were stacked in their favor and confirmed the fears of rail workers. And now decades later, as president, He's continuing to stack the deck in favor of these corporations against workers. Now, let's get to some reactions here because, expectedly, um, workers were really pissed about this. Rail Workers United tweeted, This is a legacy-defining moment for Joe Biden. He is going down as one of the biggest disappointments in labor history. Labor reporter Jonah Furman writes, Full sellout from the White House for the majority of rail workers who rejected the deal the president brokered, preemptively denying them the right to strike. This was the which side are you on moment, and the White House chose the railroad bosses. Railroad worker Ross Gruders writes, When railroads refuse to give us sick time, what they're saying is their profits are more important than their workers and the national economy. Hold the railroads accountable. Tell your elected leaders to give railroad workers the sick time they need or let them strike. Congressman Jamal Bowman writes, if Congress is going to force rail workers to only have three scheduled unpaid sick days per year, I think every congressperson should start the 118th Congress with three unpaid sick days that have to be scheduled 30 days in advance. Congresswoman AOC writes, Railroad workers grind themselves to the bone for this country as their labor produces billions for Wall Street. They demand the basic dignity of paid sick days. I stand with them. If Congress intervenes, it should be to have workers' backs and secure their demands in legislation. Well said. But it seems like the opposite is happening. Joe Biden is calling on Congress to intervene to do what the corporations want and not give the workers what they desperately need, which is paid sick time. So I'll leave that there. Um, I'm not necessarily sure at this point in time if a strike happens, but because Joe Biden is signaling that he will be intervening and is calling on Congress to intervene, I'd argue that the strike is unlikely now, although there is the possibility of a wildcat strike, which is a strike not sanctioned by the unions. But either way, this incredible uh, this story is uh, incredible because it just demonstrates how when push comes to shove, regardless of how tough presidents and Democrats talk, they always end up siding with large multinational corporations, with the billionaire class, with the elites who screw over workers. And it's just really disgusting. Uh, you know, it's not surprising, but it still is disgusting nonetheless, because we need at least one of the two major parties to at least side with workers a little bit. But we can't even get tepid support for workers here. And that's just really infuriating to me. Let's talk about a 71-year-old candidate for public office in the state of Utah named Patricia Kent. This lady right here. 
Patricia Kent is a far-right individual, a pretty standard far-right individual with not very many interests. If you look at her website, seemingly her primary concern is, quote, election integrity, suggesting that she's a stop-the-steal type of conservative, but she's not just one-dimensional. She does have other concerns, one of them being grooming. No cap, she held an hour-plus-long seminar, I guess we'll call it, explaining to her potential constituents how LGBTQ plus people, namely drag queens, are grooming children. Now, we can't watch all of it because it's extremely long and very boring and monotone, but I did prepare a small clip just so you get a sense of the way that she thinks about queer people. So as you saw, most of the evidence that she provides people with of queer grooming is just kids holding rainbow flags, generally having a good time. Um, now, grooming actually is a thing that is bad. Grooming is a danger to children. Pedophiles use grooming as a tactic to butter children up to get to know, know them so that way they can later sexually exploit them. So grooming is a thing that occurs. It's just that conservatives like her have bastardized the term grooming so that way even a queer person being in the presence of a child constitutes grooming because the logic is if these kids find out that queer people exist, a trans person or a gay person exists, then they learn that it's okay for them to be gay or trans. So because of that, because of that potential there, because you can choose to be gay or trans, well, of course, they're being groomed into this lifestyle. So that's her take on grooming. Now, you know exactly where I'm going with this. This boomer 
is a groomer and not the groomer that she describes where you're just in the presence of children. She's an actual groomer who actually posed a danger to children. LGBTQ Nation explains, after losing her right in campaign to become the top election official in Washington County, Utah, a right-wing hate group leader's history of pursuing young teenage girls has been revealed. Patricia Kent was forced to resign her job teaching middle school girls as young as 11 years old after her relationship with her young female students became a matter of public knowledge in the school community. In October, Kent led a rally denouncing the LGBTQ community, displaying pictures of young girls at a pride event in the county. Quote, they are grooming our children for immoral satanic worship, she asserted. According to the Utah Professional Practices Advisory Commission, Kent used her position as a middle school teacher to, quote, foster intimate and dependent relationships with young teenaged girls. She wrote the children intimate notes, gave them gifts, and discussed inappropriate personal details with with them against the express wishes of the student's parents and warnings from supervisors according to documents reviewed by the Salt Lake City Tribune. UPPAC also found evidence that Kent engaged in sexual relationships with at least one of the young girls, but the evidence wasn't sufficient to bring formal charges. Kent was forced to resign after her teaching certificate was suspended in 2000. That same year, she filed a lawsuit against the school board where she alleged her rights were violated. Court records show that a settlement was reached in the case and the case was dismissed. So these are the types of folks who are telling you that LGBTQ plus people are grooming children. Let me read you the definition of grooming here. This is according to Oxford. The action by a pedophile of preparing a child for a meeting, especially via an internet chat room, with the intention of committing a sexual offense. Now, in this context, this was in the year 2000, perhaps she wasn't accessing children through a chat room, but she was in the proximity of children because she was a middle school teacher and she used her influence as a middle school teacher to groom these children, even allegedly engaging in a sexual act with one of these girls. This woman is an actual groomer. This is what grooming looks like. Take note, conservatives, because this is what it is. But she did respond, and her lawyer at the time, who has since retired, responded as well. And her response is genuinely just jaw-dropping. Quote, It's absurd that 26 years later, people are making a big issue out of this, Kent told the Tribune. She implied that she won cash in the settlement. Quote, If I was guilty of what I was accused of, I would have been put in jail, okay? I wasn't. I was paid off, and that should be the end of it. I am not one to live in the past. Like I said, I've moved on with my life. I continue to do what I need to do to live a normal life. Her own lawyer, Stephen Cook, who is now retired, said that the settlement isn't a sign that she was exonerated. Quote, it wouldn't apply in a case like this at all, he said, so I don't know where she's getting that. That's what her own lawyer said. So it's just genuinely astonishing that you have these folks, these conservatives, who are claiming that LGBTQ plus people, drag queens in particular, are this huge danger to children when they themselves pose a danger to children. I mean, as Matt said on Twitter in response to the story, every accusation is a confession from conservatives because it's basically true. How many anti-grooming Republicans and conservatives have been exposed as groomers or have been exposed for exposing themselves in public? It keeps happening. They keep demonstrating how they, if anyone, is a threat to children, but yet they still keep demonizing queer people. And this is all them trying to gin up hysteria over queer people based on homophobia, based on this old trope that queer people are pedophiles. 
And during her huge uh, seminar where she talks about the danger of grooming with regard to LGBTQ plus people, she provided no evidence that queer people are grooming children. I mean, imagine thinking your child is in danger because of a drag queen, because a man chose to put on a wig, put colorful makeup on his face and wear a dress. Your child is in danger. I mean, it's just, it's, it's hysterical. This reminds me of the satanic panic. When I worked at Blockbuster dating myself here, parents would come in all the time and they'd rent their children M-rated video games where you're like torturing other people in games like Grand Theft Auto. Uh, and they're fine with this. They're perfectly fine with this. They take their kids to games with cheerleaders where they wear, the cheerleaders will wear clothing that is relatively skimpy. I don't have a problem with this, but if you're conservative, you'd think that this would be a modest, right? But no, it's it's never them. Taking your kids to Hooters, that's not a problem. Child beauty pageants, that's not a problem. You wanna know what's a real problem? You wanna know what's really inappropriate for children? Queer people. Look, there's one next to a child. Grooming, grooming, get them. It's just ridiculous. So I love this story because it demonstrates that all of these conservatives who are screaming the loudest about grooming, usually, they have some secrets of their own. So maybe the ones who continuously demonize an entire community as groomers, maybe we should look at them. Republican cowardice is one reason why the left keeps winning at the social battles, despite the fact that the population is not all in on everything that the social left wishes. Now, the polls show that there is widespread public support for same-sex marriage. What there is not widespread support for is the idea that you as a religious person ought to be forced in your life to accept same-sex marriage in the way that you do business, in the way that you send your kids to school, and the idea that, that society has a duty to force individuals to acknowledge things they don't believe to be moral, that is not something the vast majority of Americans are willing to go along with. And that is the biggest problem with the so-called Respect for Marriage Act. It essentially says that only bigots and fools, based on their silly religion, would object to the idea that man, woman, and child is the basic fundamental building block of society. And then further, it says, well, here are a few religious exemptions that we'll put out there. We'll sort of suggest that in your own church, we're not going to take away your tax-exempt status. But it doesn't actually enshrine those protections strongly at all for religious people outside of their church. So let's say that you're a religious person and let's say that you run a cake shop in Colorado and let's say you get sued every two seconds. There are no protections in this bill. What did Republicans win in this bill precisely? What did Republicans get in this bill precisely? The answer is they got pretty much nothing. They went along with it anyway because there are a lot of weak need Republicans who are unwilling to have a headline that says that they oppose same-sex marriage. Well, if that's the case, if you don't have an affirmative case for why you are either in favor of same-sex marriage or why you believe that the protections of religious people here are sufficient, then I'm not sure why you're voting for the thing or why you should be in the Senate, as I've said before. You just watched Ben Shapiro seethe over the Senate's passage of the Respect for Marriage Act, which passed 61 to 36, with 12 Republicans supporting it, including Roy Blunt, Richard Burr, Shelley Moore Capito, Susan Collins, Joni Ernst, Cynthia Loomis, Lisa Murkowski, Rob Portman, Mitt Romney, Dan Sullivan, Tom Tillis, and Todd Young. And he claims that these Republicans are cowards because deep down, they probably know that marriage equality is bad, but they're just too afraid to do what's right and see the negative headlines about them. No, they probably just don't care because most people have moved on from your antiquated way of thinking, Ben Shapiro. And not only is he ignorant in that video, but what he says a lot, I believe, is actually projection because he claims that this bill forces people to acknowledge that things that they don't believe to be moral um, is good, except 
no, it doesn't. He also says, essentially, the bill says that only bigots and fools based on their silly religion would object to the idea that a man, woman, and child is the basic fundamental building block of society. Um, no, the bill doesn't say that, actually. You can still believe those things. The difference is you don't get to impose your will. You don't get to force all of us to live in the way that you deem moral, in the way that you feel is fit. See, this is about freedom, fundamentally. Ben Shapiro is anti-freedom, and I am pro-freedom in this instance. As much as I actually do personally not like religion, and I do think that religion is silly, I would not support legislation banning religion and stopping people like Ben Shapiro from practicing his religion. But conversely, he would stop me from living my life in the way that I want to live it. I've been married to my husband now for five years. We've been together for more than 10 years. It's not just about symbolism. Having marriage is something that grants you a lot of tangible material benefits. For example, when I got married to my husband, I was able to finally get healthcare after years because he had healthcare through his employer. So this is something that is important because in order to live in a pluralistic society, we have to allow people the freedom to live the way that they want to live. But Ben Shapiro is saying, no, I don't like it, so I don't think that you should be able to live that way because I think that it's bad. But yet, I wouldn't say the same thing about him. I would fight anyone who tried to ban religion as much as I personally don't like religion. We are not the same. And he clearly hasn't read the bill because even the Mormon church endorsed the Respect for Marriage Act because it literally permits discrimination for religious people. It essentially gives special rights to religious institutions. So if a church says we don't want to marry an interracial or a gay couple, they are allowed to do that specifically because of this bill. That's why the Mormon church supported it. Religions have special rights here. And Ben Shapiro is effectively claiming that by passing this law, you're giving queer people special rights when the opposite is true. He didn't say that there directly, but this is an argument that religious people make. So if theoretically a queer couple or an interracial couple walked into a Walmart, Walmart could not turn them away. However, a church does have the legal autonomy to do that because of this law. And I do think that that's wrong, but I'm admitting this is what the law entails. Now, Ben Shapiro admits that, well, yeah, I guess you outside of your religious institution don't have freedom, which implies that within that religious institution, you do have the freedom to discriminate. But what he's saying is effectively a baker who doesn't want to bake cakes for queer couples, they should also have the ability to discriminate outside of the church. So in other words, if you work with the public, you get to be discriminatory if you're religious, you have a blank check to discriminate based on your religion. But again, that is an anti-freedom argument. Imagine if a queer baker didn't want to bake a cake for a Christian couple or turned away Christians or Muslims or Jewish people. That would be disgusting. So once again, Ben Shapiro is saying, I want to be able to discriminate because of my religion, but people on the opposite side of this aisle, people like myself are saying, we don't want to discriminate. As a society, we should not be tolerating intolerance because fundamentally that doesn't lead to more freedom. It leads to less freedom, but that's not enough for Ben Shapiro. If he's not able to impose his theocratic views on all of us, then to him, that isn't freedom. Freedom is only one way for Ben Shapiro. It's asymmetric. See, if he can tell you what to do, that's freedom. But if we all get to live our lives in the way that we want to, then that's not freedom, according to individuals like Ben Shapiro. So he is absolutely ridiculous. And even if he doesn't want to admit this, he is a bigot. That is a bigoted position by definition. 
So he can cope and see, but thankfully society is moving on. And even if individuals like him are very loud, they are the minority. Now let's talk about the Respect for Marriage Act and what it actually does. First and foremost, it repeals the Defense of Marriage Act. So it is forcing the federal government to recognize all same-sex and interracial marriages, even if Loving v. Virginia or Obergfell v. Hodges is shot down. But it doesn't force states to issue marriage licenses in that instance to same-sex couples or interracial couples. So in the event, let's say hypothetically speaking, the Supreme Court overturned Obergfell v. Hodges. Well, Alabama could ban same-sex marriages at that point and not offer marriage licenses to same-sex couples. However, because of this law, a couple who lives in Alabama can go to Kansas and get married and then come back to Alabama, and they would have to recognize that marriage because of this law. So that's why I tell you it literally permits discrimination because in the event Obergfell v. Hodges or Loving v. Virginia were overturned by the Supreme Court, states can deny marriage licenses on the basis of sexual orientation, gender identity, and race, but they still have to recognize the marriages from other states. So it's a bit of a loophole in a way. And I don't think that state should be allowed to discriminate but this was the compromise that got even the mormon church on board so i think that it's a compromise that is worthwhile even if i disagree with it now we've had marriage equality in this country for quite some time so this doesn't feel that significant on its face and there are other issues that more immediately impact the lives of the LGBTQ plus community. But I do want people to understand that this does signal that we've come a really long way and I don't want you to take that for granted. And this was highlighted in an article published in the Washington Post. 26 years ago, the US Senate voted overwhelmingly for the Defense of Marriage Act, a law broadly supported by the American public that defined marriages as the union between a man and a woman. Republicans had found a wedge issue they would use for more than a decade to divide Democrats between their liberal base and swing voters. Eight years later, then-President George W. Bush embraced protection of marriage as a central focus of his successful 2004 re-election effort. The voice of the people must be heard, he said, upon proposing a constitutional amendment to keep marriage between opposite-sex couples. But the people's voice, as it turned out, was always moving. A bipartisan group of 61 senators spoke loudly on Tuesday, signaling a near-total appending of once-dominant political dynamics when they voted to effectively nullify the 1996 law. The Respect for Marriage Act, once repassed by the House and signed by President Biden, will help protect recognition of same-sex marriages enforced by the U.S. Supreme Court's 2015 Obergfell v. Hodges ruling against future legal challenges. So obviously we have a long way to go, but we've come a really long way. And the gratitude that I feel for older LGBTQ plus generations who fought for my rights today is just infinite. What they did was pave the way for all of us. And I want to live in a world where future LGBTQ plus people don't even have to think about discrimination, don't even have to worry about coming out to their parents, don't even have to come out at all to anyone because we don't think about being queer. It's just accepted as a part of society because these are human beings who deserve a life with dignity and freedom like everyone else. But of course, bigots know that they lost on the issue of marriage equality so they're trying to find new ways to divide americans and attack lgbtq plus people this year we've seen how the groomer narrative has proliferated and led to harassment in queer spaces and whatnot and trans people are especially under attack as the right has targeted them disproportionately but understand that we've overcome a lot as a community before people thought that uh gays either didn't 
exist or they were possessed by the devil. There was a point where they were viewed as diseased during the AIDS crisis. There was the gays are pedophiles trope. And we overcame all of that. Some of these old tropes may bubble back up to the surface and new myths will be propagated about this community, but we are resilient. And overall, I do believe that we are going to win at the end of the day, but I don't necessarily believe that progress is linear. Sometimes you take a couple of steps forward, but a lot more steps back. But ultimately, I do believe that we are headed in the right direction. But right now, it's a really tumultuous and volatile time for queer people, especially trans individuals. So we have to just keep pushing ahead. And this should show us that what was once impossible is actually possible. And even if right now it feels as if the LGBTQ plus community is public enemy number one, who knows where we'll be 10 years from now. It may be worse for us, but it could be better. And that's something to hold on to. And it's, you know, an indication that we shouldn't give up and we should keep on chugging ahead because we are right and the bigots are wrong and they are losing. And as they lose, they're going to get louder and try to spew more hatred. But that's just more evidence that they're losing and we're winning. So hang on to that because it's worth something. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.